0: today on Ag News Daily. I've covered so many
1: different things, and using my podcast here recently, I've even gotten to open up more because I've become more national than I ever have been. Uh, My radio station Northeast Colorado is pretty big, pretty regional.
0: Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Happy Friday here on the Ag News Daily Podcast. Melanie Howell joined by Ashton Carr. And Ashton, I've got to apologize. Because if anyone hears any background noise, it's because I'm literally on the road. I'm not texting and driving. I've got my AirPods in. I'm going to be chatting on the podcast today, but I am not stationary. So there might be a little bit of background noise for our listeners to hear today.
2: Well, that's okay, Delaney, because I have quite a few stories to share today. So I might be doing a lot of the talking, which... I don't always like to do because I don't like listening to my own voice, but, you know, I'll pick up the slack here just for you. Perfect. That's what I need. I need you to carry us today, Ashton. Well, then I'll go ahead and just kick us off into some news for today. I have a follow-up, and really, I think this might be our final story talking about Canadian Pacific and Kansas City Southern. After months of going back and forth, Canadian Pacific Railway sealed a $27 billion deal to acquire Kansas City Southern, which is claiming the prize that would create the first railroad spanning the U.S., Canada, and Mexico. Kansas City Southern terminated a $30 billion agreement with Canadian National that had run a ground after US regulators rejected a crucial provision and the CEO of Canadian Pacific, said that we're increasing competition, not reducing competition. Shippers have more options. It's pro-growth. It's pro-employee. And so, like I said, this is going to be spanning from Canada into the U.S. and down to Mexico. And that's about 20,000 miles of track from Vancouver to Veracruz. So uh, that's a pretty big deal, I would go ahead and say. I would agree, Ashton. And it's
0: coming at a great time because as we're continuing to watch what's going on down in the port of Louisiana, we're still dealing with some major transportation issues down there. And of course, this doesn't really resolve the issue of getting exports out to countries that would need to be delivered via barge. But it definitely helps with some of those issues in general. Uh, Because as of Thursday, CHS reported that They're still lacking power for their Myrtle Grove, Louisiana grain export terminal. And power crews are really struggling to restore power in the port of New Orleans, following, of course, Hurricane Ida and Tropical Storm Nicholas. However, CHS reported that it expects to have this terminal operational for the core of corn and soybean harvest, which is, of course, very quickly upon us, Ashton. So Hopefully we'll get that port up and running. Of course, CHS is a major player in the grain market. And they're gonna want to be shipping some products to China. So they're doing everything they can to get it back up and operational down there.
2: Well, Delaney, kind of on the same note here talking about supply chain disruptions and issues, we're still seeing some farmers across the Midwest in particular waiting for equipment with dealers saying that supply chain disruptions are still to blame. This has been an ongoing issue for producers across the U.S., and it doesn't look like it is getting any better. They're starting to take orders for 2022, which is just kind of around the corner here. I mean, we still have some a couple of months here left in 2021, but if they're already forcing issues happening in 2022, I don't think that this situation is really going to get much better.
0: No, it certainly does not sound that way, Ashton. But one thing that is getting better, is anticipated to get better, is South America's crop, more specifically Argentina's crop. According to the Buenos Aires Grain Exchange, they put out some estimates as farmers are just now getting into the fields that they're going to have a pretty good-sized crop, corn crop this year, I should say. And the exchange is predicting that farmers will harvest about 55 million metric tons of corn for this next harvest season due to higher planting acres that they're expected to plant this year. Farmers are expected to plant down there about 17.5 million acres of corn, which would expand Argentina's corn planting area for the eighth consecutive year. So we are closely watching that dynamic play out there because the other part of the story, Ashton, is what's going to happen from a weather perspective? Because Brazil, southern Brazil and areas of Argentina do still have some pretty dry weather patterns hanging over their head and could greatly impact, of course, planting and then, of course, in turn, what actually gets planted down there in the field. So definitely a market dynamic that we'll be keeping an eye on.
2: Absolutely. We certainly will be keeping an eye out on that Delaney. And another thing that we've been keeping our eyes out on is the growing amount of programs by ag companies that are looking to reduce their carbon footprints or to cash in on carbon trading. And it's recently been reported that Cargill's Regen Connect program is going to be using soil sampling, farm data, and remote sensing to estimate the environmental benefits of practices like planting cover crops or no-till practices then pay growers $20 for every ton of the carbon that's sequestered. Cargill has been signing up farmers for the Region Connect program for several months now and expects to pay participants 50% of their projected annual payout this December, and the remainder will be paid out later in the 2022 crop season. Farm data is going to be gathered and verified by carbon measurement firm Regrow. And Cargill already has other mostly regional environmental programs underway, but views Regen Connect as a quote headline program that it hopes to scale up in coming seasons. I think this is might be the second or third company that we've talked about just this week talking about um, carbon sequestration and maybe on carbon sequestration now that I'm kind of thinking back on it but just trying to implement more green practices environmentally friendly practices and programs like that so just another one that is really hitting the news wires this week
0: yeah and they have it sounds like Ashton I also had this piece of news but it sounds like they have a little bit more concrete plan as far as how producers will actually get paid out and I think what Maybe even more noteworthy to mention, too, is they're anticipating or their goal, I should say, is to have about 10 million acres through their program that producers would
2: be getting paid out on. So they're trying to make some big moves, it sounds like. It certainly sounds that way, Delaney. I think it's definitely interesting. I'm excited to see what happens. And you're right. they It sounds like they have a little bit more of a concrete plan when it comes to paying and how they're really going to collect this carbon, those kinds of things. I think the only other company that we have really seen start to pay out or kind of make movements on that is Indigo. I think I saw a headline um, earlier this week talking about how they were starting to pay their producers that are involved in their carbon sequestration program, but I think that's really the only other company that I've seen something kind of similar.
0: Yeah, I would agree, and it goes another big company in this space as well, Ashton. Uh, you know, Mitchell Hora, who we've had on the podcast quite a lot over the past couple of years that we've been doing this, has really also carved his way in the carbon sequestration space, so I'll to shoot a text to
2: him and see if he's gotten any insight into this, Ashton. Well, Delaney, I have just one other story to share today coming out of Britain, and I thought this one was pretty interesting as their meat industry has warned that an impending shortage of carbon dioxide could cause massive disruptions to food supplies within the next two weeks, so this is pretty concerning. CO2 is used to stun animals before slaughter, it's used in the vacuum packing of food products to extend their shelf life, and is used to put the fizz into beer, cider, and soft drinks. And it is also required for some medical procedures and used in the nuclear, nuclear and semiconductor industries. And it looks like Britain is going to be having a shortage or kind of looking out for one. Their food supply chain, which is already kind of hurting from an acute shortage of heavy goods vehicle drivers and the impact of Brexit and COVID-19. And they're heavily reliant on fertilizer producers for CO2, which is a byproduct of their production process. However... Two of the largest fertilizer producers in Britain have curbed production due to a surge in natural gas prices, which has in turn started to dry up CO2 supplies. I don't know what will happen if there is this intense shortage. Um, Britain suffered a major CO2 shortage back in 2018. So hopefully they have some kind of plan together or an idea of what they can possibly do if they do see a shortage in the next two weeks. But it doesn't look like things are too good on the horizon. Well, Ashton, I would guess that we'll at least see consumer food prices at
0: the grocery store than there in England, Great Britain, uk whatever they go by nowadays i would expect that to, to pick up at least if nothing else
2: yeah i like how you say whatever they go by because honestly i get confused to england uk britain there's so much and i just um don't keep up enough to know what they want to be called
0: i i really don't know at this point either i mean i think if you ask people from different portions of the uk they would tell you differently too like i think technically like scotland and ireland are part of the uk but they really want to be lumped into that? I don't know.
2: Hard to say. I don't know either, Delaney, but what I do know is that I'm all out of news for today and ready to hop into the markets if you are. I certainly am, Ashton, because I'm driving, I'm going to let you go ahead and tackle those for me so I'm getting a car accident. Well, Delaney, I don't have a whole lot of commentary as you normally do, which our audience probably knows by now. So I'm just going to go ahead and hop right in here with the corn contracts. The December down two and a quarter cents to close at five twenty-seven and a quarter. The March down two and a half cents to close at five thirty-four and a quarter. In soybeans, the November contract down twelve cents to close at twelve eighty-four. The January closing eleven and three-quarter cents lower at twelve ninety-three. Over in Chicago wheat, the December down five and three quarter cents lower to close at 707 and a quarter. The March down at six and a quarter cents lower to close at 717 and three quarters. Heading over here into livestock in live cattle, the October contract down 80 cents to close at 122.80 and the December down a dollar and five cents to close at 127.52 and a half. In feeder cattle, the September contract down a dollar to close at $1.54.87 and a half. The October closing 72.5 cents lower at 156.37 and a half. Some good news here for, for a change in lean hogs. Green across the screen here as we start off in the October contract closing at 25 cents higher at 85.72 and a half. And the December closing 60 cents higher at 75.05. Closing things out with our class three dairy milk futures, the September unchanged to close at 1661 and the October up five cents to close at 1720. With that, Delaney, I'm going to go ahead and kick it over to our conversation that we had with a new podcaster on the Global Ag Network, Lori Boyer. Well, folks, I'm very excited to introduce today's guest. She's one of my great farm broadcasting friends. She's one of the newest podcasts to join the Global Ag Network. And she's just an all-around great gal. We're welcoming today Lori Boyer, who is located out in Colorado. Lori, you are kind of a jack of all trades, just like Ashton and I, when it comes to making and creating content for farmers. Tell us a little bit about your background. Okay. Yeah. I grew up uh,
1: actually on a front range. I live in Eastern
2: Colorado right now, but I grew up on a front range, primarily
1: horses. You know, we had some smaller livestock along the way, but that was my thing. I was into showing and rodeoing. My dad's a a trainer and a breeder. And so that's what I grew up with. And then I met my husband in school and in college And we moved out to Southeast Colorado, and that's where I started my farm broadcasting career out in Lamar, Colorado, which is a very Southeast corner. I was out there for nine years. I started a syndicated radio show while I was out there, which then led me to meet uh, the owner of KSIR Radio in Fort Morgan, Colorado, which is in the Northeast part of the state. He picked up my reports, and eventually uh, they needed a farm broadcaster there, and So we worked it out, and I made my way northeast and still ran my network and did a a radio show and farm news. Eventually, I sold my radio show. I actually merged it with another farm broadcaster and continued to go ahead and do my radio show and do my network. I mean, excuse me, and do my farm news and things for uh, the station. We do have seven stations, so it is a network in that sense. And that's where I'm at today, uh, part of my day. And then the other part is just doing some freelance work. And among the freelance work that I do is some podcasting, which is kind of a newer venue for me. Thanks to Delaney for helping get me kind of going in that. But it's just a a really easy transition. And according to our National Association of Farm Broadcasting data and research, more and more farmers are turning towards podcasts for convenience and it's on demand And then they can really pick and choose what topics they want to hear. So that's where I'm at now. I've been in Northeast Colorado for 19 years now. I have two older boys. One's moved out. The other one just graduated. And my husband works for John Deere. So all over ag around here.
2: So, Lori, you've been doing a couple of different things in broadcast over the years. And like you said, things are kind of changing when we're talking about our audiences and the avenues that they're going towards. So you really had a firsthand look at the the changes that we've seen in agriculture broadcasting over the past few years or so. What has that experience been like for you and that um, learning curve of kind of transitioning to meet the people where they're at?
1: Yeah, so I'm dating myself a little bit here, but I've been doing this business for 25 years now. And I think that the challenge, but also the exciting changes are all the different platforms that are available out there for us to use to get messages out. It does sometimes create a little bit more work in some sense, and in other sense, it it doesn't. It's easy because you can get more out there in a quicker amount of time using technology. You know, I find it interesting, and that that is an interesting question, and this conversation comes up quite a bit. Since we, are, right now in agriculture, have about four generations, we're a multi-generational industry, and a lot of industries are, I'm not saying they are not, but we really have to think about everyone. You know, the older folks don't necessarily have social media, you know, don't even have computers in some cases, and every year... When I'm out and about in a farm show, I always run into one or two people that just are old enough that they uh, are beyond that. They don't even want to learn that. So you still need your typical radio. You still need to have some sort of uh, print to go along with that if that's what your operation does. And then, of course, you have everyone in between and the millennials who are using, of course, their iPhones and portable devices even more and more. You have everyone in between that wants to have a lot of details to your your Twitter that's very concise and precise on how you put things out there. So the, the main changes I've seen is just use of more platforms, but catering those platforms to all different audiences and doing the best you can to get the message out. The other change that I've seen is in education levels. You know, it used to be where uh, older farmers maybe didn't have the college education. Then you have my generation, generation X, Most of us have some sort of college education, but now more and more millennials and a lot of my millennial listeners just go into some sort of trade, which is still important. And both my boys are in trade uh, jobs. So there's nothing wrong with that, but don't have, you know, the PhDs behind them and don't have those, the academia type of wording that a lot of other people use. So finding your way to message to all of those needs is a challenge, but also is exciting.
2: Lori, I know that as a fellow broadcaster, you get to interview a ton of people. Has there been any standout interviews or topics or things that really just get your creative juices flowing and are like your favorite things to cover?
1: Oh, boy, over the years, I've covered so many different things. And using my podcast here recently, I've even gotten to open up more because I've become more national than I ever have been. Uh, My radio station, Northeast Colorado is pretty big, pretty regional and we are online. So we have listeners all over the country, but I stick to that kind of local regional state. And then of course I do do national news, but not like this. So I've had some uh, kind of a new world open up a little bit and being more creative and having my own decisions on what I want to put on there too. I would say I've always enjoyed covering political stuff. And I always tell people I know a little bit about a lot of things, and I'm sure you feel this way too, Delaney, Mm -hmm. but I don't know a lot about one thing because we don't live in the world that everyone... So the wheat growers live in a wheat world and the corn growers live in a corn world. I mean, they might raise other crops, don't get me wrong, but they eat, live and breathe within those organizations. And we just kind of step in for a 10 to 30 minute interview. And find out what's going on. We're not living it every day. So political stuff has always been something very important to me. And I'm glad that I paid attention when I went to Colorado State University. When I took politics, when I took my political science class, at the time, I didn't love it. At the time, I just, you know, wanted to get through it. (laughs) And now I realize, you know, that God had me there for a reason because I needed that. I needed that class, just like ag water law. I needed that class to do what I'm doing now. But at the time, when you're a teenager you know, or early 20s, you're not thinking like that. You're just thinking uh, how boring it is and you want to get through it. But thank God I paid attention. I was mature enough by then to pay attention and understand that I needed to, to get good grades and get through college and and do what I'm doing. So Ag Water Law is interesting to cover. I don't know that I'll ever understand it 100%, especially in Colorado, because we have Oh, a plethora of different things. We got junior and senior water rights. We have rivers and aquifers. We have uh, all kinds of variations of water and compacts that we have to live up to and we have western water, you have eastern Colorado water. There's just so many different aspects of it. So I enjoy it, but it's tough at the same time. But probably my favorite thing lately has been more talking about new innovations. So I interviewed um, a startup company out of Nebraska with a green weevil. It goes across to the gang, green bins. And the, the ultimate goal is to keep people out. And so they don't get sucked in and get hurt because we hear of these accidents and deaths all the time. That was so fun um, to interview those folks and how they're evolving. Um, there's a robotic weed picker out there now. Just those kinds of things are really fun to learn about Delaney.
2: Well, Lori, let's go ahead and talk here about the Ag Queen podcast because you're on, I believe, your 15th episode now. So you've had a lot of great conversations. Let's go ahead and dive into where the idea came from for Ag Queen and the conversations that you've really enjoyed having.
1: So the the reason it's called Ag Queen is that's just kind of been a nickname I've had since I've started in this business. When I was at Kelomar in Lamar, Colorado, a sports guy. Um, called me, well, first he called me the Ag Hag. How do you like that? And I was young. And then he called me the Ag Princess for a long time. And after a while, I graduated to Ag Queen. And so it caught on. And I've always just been called, I guess, I don't, the Ag Queen everywhere I went. So that's kind of where that came from. And being the only female farm broadcaster in Colorado, it just, that's where that came from. So the Ag Queen podcast it features a variety of mainly educational information. And that's kind of how I coin it um, when I'm promoting it is the educational factor. I love learning. I love learning something every day. That's what keeps me in this business and has kept me in this business for 25 years is I get to learn something every day and I'm not even exaggerating. And so I try to take that to my ad queen podcast platform It's a variety of checking in with ag organizations, as well as I mentioned, innovation and some hot topic type stuff. But also, I've gotten into doing a little bit of a combination of education and human interest stories. So people that are doing things maybe a little bit differently, things that are a little bit unique. I mentioned a green weevil. I mean, just that idea, how they brought that to market. It's a family-operated business. The interest on in robotics I and mean, that whole story is just really an awesome story. I have interviewed the Peterson brothers. I think a lot of people are, are really familiar with them out of Kansas and how they're using their social media and their advocacy in a different realm and something so unique, something that's gone viral and just everyday people, that human interest story behind what they're doing and how they do it. and down-to-earth people just learning um, learning about what people's passions are and some people just think so outside the box and it's so fun to listen to them so yeah I love wow. learning and I hope that the listeners and the people that are downloading the podcast are enjoying that as well and there is some political discussion in there on new things happening for example uh, in my last interview with the National Bison Association, we talked about some grant funding for processing capacity. Those people who follow the uh, livestock industry know that we're having a huge problem with processing capacity. But beyond that, labor issues—that is a—that's standard not only in livestock but for Colorado Fruit and Vegetable Growers Association and other uh, the wineries in California. Those types of things having a real hard time with labor. So educating people not only on the issue of labor and why we are problem with labor, but also what legislation is out there to help assist with that or legislation coming down the pike, things like that.
2: Well, Lori, we just want to thank you once more for coming on and talking to us today, introducing you to the audience. Very excited to have you on the network as well. So thanks once more.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be working with you.
2: Thanks again there to Lori for coming on and chatting with us. You know, I don't really get to know a whole lot about our podcasters other than their bios that we put up on the website, Delaney. So I like talking to the new folks that we get on. and We've had quite a few over the past couple of months. So folks, if you haven't checked out the Global Ag Network website in some time, you can do so, of course, at globalagnetwork.com. And you can find us there as well as some of our new podcasters. With that, Delaney, should we let the people go? Let's let him go.